This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. My guest in the studio today is Miguel Lavario, who is an assistant professor of history at Texas Tech University in Lubbock and a UT graduate, and he specializes in the history of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, and he is the author of Militarizing the Border, When Mexicans Became the Enemy. Welcome, Miguel. Thank you. So, uh, where do we want to start the story of Mexican migration to the U.S.? Well, I mean, we can definitely, as a historian would do, is we can go as far back as we possibly can in the sense of the colonial period, but I think for the sake of our conversation, it's, it's safe to maybe even start with the, uh, the Treaty of Guadalupe in 1848, and where the understanding of, of citizenship and even to a small, small degree immigration flow, what is going to now be the United States, which is the southwestern part and was formerly northern Mexico. But in essentially, in the, in, the, in the modern context, and the idea of how we understand Mexican migration it really begins in 1910 with the Mexican Revolution. Okay. Uh, the revolution that lasted between 1910 and 1920 uh, spurred the first major migration from Mexico. We have quantified approximately a million people coming into the United States from Mexico during that period. Of course, we have to, in some ways, take that number with a grain of salt because we can't document everybody. But with the with the crisis and the chaos that was occurring there and the economic upheaval and obviously with the war, uh, people were, were displaced. But we can also understand it that the United States, for example, was in a very much an industrial revolution at the time and was clamoring for labor from all parts of the world, including Mexico. So there was also that pull factor during the 1910s. Ironically, what's interesting about that period is and it's also the era of, of some of the most restrictive immigration policies in American history. You know, the, the part of the most infamous one is, of course, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that lasted until 1943. But we see a series of, of policies passed during the 1910s, and most notably in 1917, which is one of the most comprehensive immigration restrictive uh, laws we've we've had and we had at that time. And where the United States not only barred migration from what they call the Asiatic Barred Zone, but they also identified uh, types of people that were going to be denied entry. And it ranged from, and I'm saying this literally, uh, idiots, polygamists, feeble-minded people, anybody who is infected with a disease or with obvious symptoms of a of communicable disease. And the list goes, is pretty extensive. But how it affected Mexican migration is that included with this policy was a head tax. It was, an, uh, I believe, an $8 head tax, which was a sizable amount of money at that time, especially for agricultural workers or, or laborers coming at that time. That was one of the first major uh, policies to affect Mexican migration. And what other scholars have noted, including myself, is that it also spurred on the idea of, of illegal entry. Because in 1917, it, it formalized that every immigrant should come through the port of entry a formal port of entry. So in order to avoid the tax or to avoid um, what was happening at the time where delousing baths uh, forced migration to go sort of underground or sort of go to a sense of unauthorized uh, entry. Just to go back a moment, the head tax was literally a tax the immigrants were supposed to pay mm -hmm. in order to mm -hmm. enter. Yes. Uh, wow. Could you talk a little bit more about the delousing process that immigrants faced as they came across the border? Sure. It's a very significant uh, period in, in Mexican migration. It's, 
uh, been covered by quite a few scholars, including myself and Alexander Mina Stern and John McKernan Gonzalez, who's also a professor here at Texas. In Dilaosing, there was a, a typhoid scare. In, 19, in the early 1910s, around 1917, 1916, mid-1910s, uh, there, was a, there was a typhoid scare coming out of Mexico. And it was mostly from central Mexico. And it made its way to the border in the fact that people were concerned that migrants who were coming in at that time were going were gonna to bring the disease with them. Although we don't see a huge outbreak of typhoid along the border. However, the U.S. government got involved and set up uh, health installations and, and, and facilities to, to administer preventive uh, medicine in, 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 this, in this crisis. And the principal method that they used was what we call delousing baths. And what was thought at the time to be the most effective treatment for stopping typhoid was to kill the lice that many people had and was carrying the disease. Uh, and the best way to address that was with kerosene and vinegar. So essentially, these migrants would have to would, would come to the port of entry, um, remove their clothes, have their clothes soaked in this in this solution of kerosene and vinegar, as well as take the bath and put themselves into the solution. And then they would subject their clothing to high temperature dryers. After that, they would be given a certificate saying that they had completed the process. Now, mind you, there were several things that come out of this, but a couple that come to mind right away. It was only at the U.S.-Mexico port of entry that migrants were subjected to this. We don't see it in Ellis Island. We don't see it in Angel Island. It's only at the U.S.-Mexico border and principally in places like El Paso and in South Texas. The other is that these migrants, you know, this is a border community. So in people, like, for example, in Ciudad Juarez live there but would maybe work in, in people's homes in El Paso or in factories or wherever. So they commuted. Now, if you went on a Monday and, and subjected yourself to this bath, you would have to, and you have to go back to work on Tuesday and Wednesday and so forth, you'd have to subject yourself to the bath every single time. So it became a, a problem, and it became dehumanizing, and it was, there was also rumors and suggestions that uh, officers were taking pictures of women in the nude while they were taking baths and selling them as postcards in, in bars in Juarez and El Paso. Uh, that uh, caused a stir among uh, officials in the United States. And then it eventually led to a, a small riot where a, a woman, a young woman, uh, was refusing to subject herself to another bath she was able to gain the support of other women on the train with her. They were able to cause a ruckus. The, the army had to come in and, and, and put down the riot, as well as the Mexican army and Juarez and so forth. Uh, and after that, what it resulted in was that they would be given um, a certificate saying they took the bath and they didn't have to take it for, I believe it was a week or maybe another couple of weeks. So they, now they didn't have to do it every day. Um, but what we're seeing here is that what's interesting about this as well and what I meant by the comment is dehumanizing, not just the treatment itself and what it entails, but the only other people that were subjected to this were, were not people, were living things, were cattle. Mm. And they got this sort of uh, process from the way they would uh, uh, delouse cattle coming in from Mexico. And they copycatted the process of herding the people into lines, uh, going in systematically through this uh, uh, bathing solution, and then letting them come in. It's almost identical. And, and that's really remarkable to think about is people are coming in and being treated literally like cattle. Also, if I'm not mistaken, American citizens who are entering from Mexico were not treated 
that way. They no, were exempt. They were exempt. And what's also interesting about that is that, you know, as I mentioned before, a lot of uh, workers from Mexico were coming in and working in, 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 in a domestic sphere, working as maids or what have you. And now you think if you're trying to prevent the transfer of these diseases, you're going to have to address the people they come in contact with. Well, those ladies of those homes never were subjected to any kind of treatment or delousing or anything like that. So there is obviously an intention there of, of addressing only Mexican uh, migrants. And of course, there becomes the issue of race and that, well, Anglo women don't have to do this because they're not dirty. Right. Only Mexicans. And so there's a, there's a, a very interesting context there. Well, it's easy to see why people would start seeking out ways to circumvent this by coming mm-hmm. across through unofficial channels. Oh, very much so. I mean, there's an extensive oral history collection at the University of Texas at El Paso. And one gentleman who was recorded, you know, described in vivid detail of what they were subjected to. And they would even spray or make sure or go, do an extra treatment on their on their sexual organs. And it, he said it was it was quite humiliating. And, uh, and he said, yeah, we would sometimes not even go through it because we didn't want to take off our pants. You mentioned that there was a key piece of legislation in 1917. Mm-hmm. Was that intended to reinforce or to replace this process, or were they just two mutually exclusive processes altogether? No, they were, ex- they were, they were mutually exclusive. I mean, the 1917 was, was, was addressing a national, uh, quote-unquote, immigration problem, uh, mostly from the northeast uh, part of the United States. Uh, there was a strong uh, nativist movement developing in the 1910s, a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing today was pretty much uh, the same in, in 1910. They're, they're uneducated. There's a fear that too many Catholics are coming in. Uh, the type of migrants that are coming in, which are mostly Southern Eastern Europeans, are not desirable. Uh, we also, this is at the peak of the eugenics movement. So, you know, in fact, I use a study in my classes that was conducted by a Harvard economics professor, but he was funded by the Department of Labor at the time to basically qualify the best racial stock for the United States. In other words, which country would contribute to our race and make it better? Now, that sounds eerily familiar if we think about the 1930s and 40s in Germany. Right, absolutely. Um, Not only did he have to describe and define which nationalities or which uh, races is what they call them uh, would would benefit us, but he also was asked to uh, rank them. So he gave us, you know, the Nordic races were considered the most desirable and the best racial stock, and that's how they worded it, racial stock for the United States. Well, at the bottom were mostly uh, of African descent or even Latin America and indigenous uh, people. So it was quite fascinating to see that uh, that you have this situation that's both funded by the government and led by some of the, at the time, premier scholars in the, in the field. So it's an affected Mexicans, and Mexicans were sort of in the, an interesting sort of dynamic because— uh, at this time, they were desperately needed by farmers and by employers because of the drop-off of Chinese immigration from from the Chinese Exclusion Act. So they were given a lot of exemptions regarding these types of restrictions, uh, which will change in 1930 when the stock market crashes and the Great Depression begins. We have what's called a repatriation of Mexican uh, and Mexican-Americans back to Mexico. One of the biggest concerns at the time were that foreign workers were occupying jobs that native-born Americans could occupy. In a time where unemployment is ranging between 27 to 30%, we led uh, the initiative in the United States, led by the FBI, the Border Patrol, and local law enforcement to raid workplaces and homes and forcibly remove uh, immigrants 
and repatriate them back to Mexico. And, and probably the most effective tactic in that case was intimidation. They used the media at the time. They used newspapers, word of mouth, and basically scare people to leave on their own, which a lot of them did voluntarily. And we had, I mean, half of those that were, were repatriated were actually U.S. citizens. Wow. And then uh, I call this a schizophrenic relationship that, that the United States has with Mexican migration because, you know, 19, early 20th century, you couldn't get enough workers. 1929, 1930, we're repatriating back. Well, World War II hits. And now we're like, well, wait, just kidding. Come back. Right. <laughs> we need you. And that's the Bracero program, which lasts until 1964. Um, but in between that period, you have uh, Operation Wetback, uh, which, of course, today is a very derogatory term, but it was the actual name of the, of the, uh, of the initiative at that time. And this is in the 19, early 1950s and 1952. Uh, because of political pressure and political rhetoric, the U.S. government actually uh, engaged the idea of, well, let's just get them out of here and we will physically remove them from the United States. And I find this interesting because, you know, you hear some of the rhetoric today about, well, why don't we just get them up and take them, take them back to Mexico? Well, we actually did that 60 years ago. And it didn't even last a year because what we found out is that, first of all, when they were, getting, when they were deported, within days, sometimes even less than that, they were back at the border and back at work. Uh, so then they said, well, what if we deport them even in the interior of Mexico to central Mexico, and we're going to utilize planes and boats and buses? Well, those contracts kind of went up. The prices went up. And even though they were deporting these migrants back into in the interior of Mexico, they were still coming back. Mm-hmm. So at the end, what they realized is that it, was too, it became too costly and it was highly ineffective. So when we, when we look at this period, when we look at the 20th century, a lot of the proposed ideas of what we should do with the unauthorized immigrants here in the United States were actually either proposed 100 years ago or, or, or less, and in some cases were actually enacted, and we found out what, that they were ineffective. So it's, it's really interesting to look at history that way and look at what we, you know, especially in the time right now where we're dealing with the immigration reform bill and so forth. Well, off of that question, um, the of course key and very touchy issue uh, in the current immigration reform discussion is the question of whether or not people who came here should be given a path to citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I say people who came here undocumented. Has there been at any point in the past a similar program where I'm thinking particularly, you know, at the turn of the century when they weren't really checking identities, uh, papers or issuing immigrant visas for, for people who were coming across the border? Well, I think that, you know, there, there's definitely a, a, maybe a comparable experience when we look at the Chinese uh, during the exclusion era. But, you know, that's also very, you know, also unique at the same time. I mean, what I mean by comparable is that they were denied pathways of citizenship and eventually would get that overturned. But then, and of course, they were denied even all-out entry. So there are some broader parallels between the you know, Mexican migration and Chinese. But the, another big difference is that since 1848, Ethnic Mexicans living in what is now the Southwest United States were American citizens, and it was dictated in the treaty. And what's interesting about that is that when we look at the idea of citizenship and Mexican-Americans is, you know, in 1848, the only other people that had first-class citizens were white males. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, um, Mexicans or ethnic Mexicans, when I say by ethnic Mexicans, I mean by Mexican-Americans, but also in some cases, you know, Mexican-born. Um, are legally and politically considered white, which is something very unique. You know, after ni- in, a, in a Supreme Court case in the 1970s is when it was legally identified that Mexicans were a minority or were 
uh, not white. But up till then, they were legally and politically white. So they were never barred from voting. Of course, there were restrictions and obstacles like we saw with African Americans during and you know, in Reconstruction and past and after Reconstruction. But technically, they had the right to vote, and they were labeled as white. So the idea of citizenship for a lot of Mexican Americans is 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 a very important one when we talk about the their civil rights movement. When we talk about their place here in the United States, they have had an active and long history with military service, for example, since the the U.S. Uh, War for Independence with uh, with Britain, and most notably in World War One, and of course World War Two, they were the most highly decorated uh, ethnic group in the United States. And that became a starting point or a catapult for their civil rights movement because of their service. But most importantly is that they were here. And this was, and what's also unique about their experience is that this was Mexico. So the idea of place and belonging and even citizenship to a degree is a unique experience for, for, for Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. And finally, I just sort of want to touch on the theme that's referenced in the title of your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, you know, I've done work in, in El Paso and also down in the, the Rio Grande Valley, and I'm constantly hearing stories about, you know, when I was a kid, you could just walk across, you know, <laughs> half the time the Rio Grande didn't have any water in yes. it. You know, you could go across for, you know, play with the kids on the other side of the river mm-hmm. and come back in time for dinner. When did that change? When did the border start to militarize? That's a very good question. And, and so what I trace in my book is um, there's always been some I- level of policing the border. If it's not the U.S. Army as it's pushing its way west and displacing Native Americans, for example, I mean, Fort Bliss, is, a, uh, which is in El Paso, is an example of, of that removal. But it's also one of the early institutions that we have of border security or, or an institution dealing with border security at the time. Now, it's not in the same context that we're thinking of today, but it definitely starts in the mid-19th century um, but I would argue when we think of the sort of the modern idea of militarizing or patrolling the border, uh, we can probably trace it back to the Chinese exclusion era, where we, uh, when we, they did have a, a border patrol outfit uh, specifically there to enforce the Chinese Exclusion Act, and they were stationed in El Paso and Arizona and, and New Mexico. I use an autobiography of, of an early patrolman, a Chinese inspector is what they were called, he was talking about the, the difficulty and sort of the mundane uh, responsibility of patrolling such a vast area. And we have to understand, too, is that this wasn't uh, an outfit that had a, a patrolman every 100 yards. I mean, you had a handful of patrolmen uh, monitoring a 100-mile 100 100 radius. So it, it was sort of symbolic more than it was effective. But nevertheless, what's interesting about that story is that we talk about the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, and the resulting fire destroyed the city. And along with that, it destroyed the the records of the Chinese Mm -hmm. and their immigration status. So a lot of them took advantage of that. And this one patrolman mentioned in his his, uh, memoirs that, oh, I can tell which ones came here before 1906 and which ones came after. And they asked him how, or he he tried to, to explain how. Their shoes, their pants, the most really subjective and, right. and, I don't know, strange ways of understanding. But what's strange is that when Arizona was trying to, when they passed their SB 1070 and they were including in the training of the law enforcement how to spot an undocumented immigrant, they actually included in there that like, they wear a certain type of shoe. And they named the brand and it was just, you know, really random. But right. it's like, wow, 100 years later and we're still kind of in the same uh 
uh, formula to sort of quote unquote identify, which of course is inaccurate. So really in the Chinese exclusion era, really we see the, the, the beginning of the, of the patrolling of the border. Um, obviously the border patrol is, is, uh, established in 19, in the 1924 quote, uh, immigration act, uh, the quota act, which was meant to, um, quote unquote, correct the 1921 act, which set quotas on, on all, uh, countries with the exception of the Western hemisphere. And that's interesting because we see that, you know, certain countries are given preference and over others. Uh, but Mexico was excluded. And, and, and Mexico was excluded for one principal reason, because of Texas. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people aren't aware of that. It's like, you know, because there was a, a huge uh, movement in a way where people wanted Mexicans to be included on the quota rolls. And to be and to be excluded from entering the United States to a degree, but then there was an equally strong contingency that said we cannot survive without them. And these are not necessarily you know bleeding hearts or anything. These are actually farmers, and they lobby quite extensively, both with their letters but also with their money, and are able to keep Mexicans off that list because they literally said we cannot survive without Mexican labor. We will sink as an economy. And so that's also an interesting sort of uh, dynamic. We understand that the Border Patrol is created in 1924. Its its major headquarters is in El Paso. It's not in D.C., and that's one of the first. It's the first uh, major headquarters there. Uh, it also signifies that where immigration is coming from in the United States. It's no longer, I mean, even though Ellis Island has sort of become this romantic and, and sort of symbol, master symbol when we talk about U.S. migration. But by 1924, we can argue that it becomes the southern border. Right. Um, and the Quota Act had a big part of that in reducing that, that role of Ellis Island. So, yeah, Chinese Exclusion Act era and, and of course, in the early 1920s when, it's, when the U.S. Border Patrol was established in 1924. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, I'd like to thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. This really has been another it. episode of 15-Minute History. We'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History. That's the numerals 1-5-Minute History. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.